I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. Debbie Parker Oliver. She's a professor at the University of Missouri who became a caregiver to her husband. Together, they decided to deprive death of its strangeness. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about how you came to work with the hospice and palliative care movement. Well, in uh, 1978 um, is when it kind of my interest started. My uh, stepfather uh, passed away while on a business trip, and that introduced me for the first time as a grown person to the whole idea of uh, death and dying. And we had to make a decision from afar, actually, to disconnect his life support. And this was following the whole um, Karen Quinlan discussions. And we'd had those family discussions at the dinner table, thank goodness. And so um, at least we had had the discussions. Uh, And then uh, when I got into school and got to talking about uh, uh, death and dying in a death and dying class, I was hooked. (laughs) Weird as it sounds, I was hooked. (laughs) Well, in hospice and palliative care, it also inspired you to go on to get your PhD, correct? That's right. After uh, working in the field for several years, um, I got the opportunity to go back to school and uh, got the research bug and decided as great as it is that I needed to know how to make it better. And you're, you're a PhD social worker, correct? That's right. Yep. So you, you have your BSW, your MSW, and now you're like Benet Brown. Well, I have my BSW, my MSW, a bachelor's degree in sociology, and my PhD is actually in rural sociology. You're part of the medical school at Missouri University. Um, The medical students are receiving a lot of education, and I remember talking with you uh, a few months ago that I think medical schools are getting a little bit of a bad rap because they're saying, well, you know, the medical students are coming out of these university and these medical schools, and they don't know anything about death and dying. But you opened my eyes to something. Do you remember what you you said? No, except that I am teaching. I do teach some on that, and I do a lecture on it. So they're getting some things. Um, And we've uh, worked really hard to try to incorporate that. You said that students are being taught things about death and dying, but when they get in the field... They have the pressure from other individuals who were not taught things about death and dying, and they succumb. That's exactly right. We hear that all the time. Uh, and it's not even just about death and dying, but it's some of the other new things that we teach medical students on how to communicate, how to be involved in shared decision making, how to do advanced care planning. Um, and we do all the right things, teach them, they get it, and then they go out and they watch watch it being done another way, and then are expected by their mentors to do it a different way. And and the teaching goes aside, at least for a while. And it gets to be a little discouraging um, 
there's definitely generational differences in some of these things. Especially now that technology is having such a huge impact on the medical culture, correct? Oh, yeah, no question about that. And different different physicians are different willingness to accept that technology. So uh, over the years, how long have you been at the medical school at, at Missouri? Uh, I've been in the med school 10 years. I've been at, uh, at the university 17 years as a professor. I started in the school of social work and then moved over. Throughout your last 10 years within the medical school, have you seen students start to lean in and learn techniques in how to have these hard and difficult conversations? And how have you seen them grow? Oh, there's no question about that. Um, and I watched it uh, with some of my very own students as my husband was dying as they came and, and took care of him and to watch their comfort with the conversation and their willingness to have the conversations. Um, it was pretty powerful. And just two weeks ago, I was um, with a department chair of another university, and she was talking about her son who had gone to our medical school and his favorite teacher. And his favorite teacher was someone who was very lighthearted and could talk about anything and made a joke about things. But the poor soul had head and neck cancer. And that was my husband. And uh, this has been probably eight years ago. And he had made such an impact on that student uh, talking about his disease and his disease process that the student still talks about it. So you can make a difference. <laughs> so let, let's talk about your husband, because your, you guys' approach to his end of life was I've never seen it before. Um, and I, that's what I love about it because you guys were you doing YouTube videos and you wanted, because he, I, I'm assuming he was a teacher, he wanted to show and teach people what it was like to be a patient on the other side. So tell me a little bit about your experience. Yeah, he was a born teacher. He, he never really started out to inspire anybody, but it ended up that way. Um, after his diagnosis, we had to break the news to our faculty. We were both in the same department because we'd been missing a lot of meetings. So we decided that the best way to do that would be to make a video that he would share with the faculty. Well, the faculty was so overwhelmed by that, that they then asked us to begin sharing it. And that's when we learned about this thing called YouTube. And we put it up there just primarily for our family and our friends. And uh, our youngest son saw it and just went crazy about it and said, I've got to share this. This can help a lot of people. And so then we started getting requests for other topics, not just about how do you break bad news, but how does it feel? And uh, I like to say that David got a new chalkboard um, because YouTube became that chalkboard. He just he found meaning and purpose as a as a teacher at the end of the very first video. He said, if ever there was a time to teach, now is it. And uh, and certainly that's that's what he did. And then he drugged me out from behind the camera uh, to join him. <laughs> Uh, and what I discovered was I could do all the research in the world and I wouldn't get the visibility that I could with a YouTube video. <laughs> right, right. Well, you, you became a caregiver. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, going from teaching people about death and dying to actually putting on the caregiver shoes and gloves. 
when it all started, I had a friend who said, Debbie, if you, um, if ever anybody was prepared for this, it has to be you because you studied it. You've, you've walked to this journey with people. And I suddenly realized that uh, what I knew in my head, I hadn't felt in my heart. And there's a big difference. And every day, practically for 42 months, I would say to myself, um, you know, all these people who have done this, and if it's this hard for you, how hard must it be for other people? Because what you know um, suddenly kind of goes out the window. And I would hear myself asking the same questions that other patients and families had asked me. And I had given them answers, and it, and now they seem so unreal because um, I hadn't experienced that myself. Uh, everything from what it feels like to give those final doses of morphine to your loved one when they're dying and how it feels to say the goodbye that I had tried to teach people how to do to, you know, what it's like to worry and to anticipate death and then to go through bereavement. So now what do you tell family members? Now on the other side of all of this. Yeah, and I'm actually making a new series of videos as a caregiver from caregiver to caregiver. And now I can talk about how how it feels as well as what you can do. Um, and I know this feels scary and I know that this feels lonely. Um, and I didn't think I could do this and I did and and try to speak in a tone which I don't come through as an academic, but I'm coming through as somebody who's walked that journey. And it allows me to walk that journey with them in a completely different way. And don't you feel when you start off with a personal story, people sort of pay more attention to what you have to say? And it, it's not your social work degrees, it's your personal experience. Yeah, and, and people are so receptive to that. Stories are powerful. And they're especially powerful when I can, at the same time, use the videos that David made so that they get to know him. And so what I like to do when I, when I share my story is, is play a clip of him and introduce him so that he becomes a real person and they get to know the fun and exciting David Oliver and they watch the progression of the disease from an early clip to the end. You can see the physical effect as well as the psychological effect that this process had on this uh, amazing man. And then they relate to my story even more because they've watched that in their loved one. Um, we lose not only the person, but we lose the physical person that we knew. I mean, David was an athlete. He'd just ridden his bike 75 miles the summer before he was diagnosed. And to go from that to not being able to walk down the block is a huge change in just 42 months. Um, and I think only when you've been through that can you really understand the impact that that has. So tell me a little bit about the day um, your husband told you about his diagnosis. He had kept telling me that he had this lump on his neck and he'd had a basal cell uh, thing taken off. And I kept saying, that's it, that's it. And he goes, no, it's not. So he went to the doctor um, for something else and he came by my office afterwards and he said, you know, I showed this to my doctor and my doctor had this, they were good friends, he said, and he went into doctor mode and he had this very concerned look on his face and this really might be something. Well, from that day on, I didn't miss a doctor's appointment with him. So I was with him the day that they broke the news. And um, 
to say that you're shocked and um, overwhelmed is is an absolute understatement. I mean, literally all the breath and all the air goes out of the room uh, when you receive something like that. Um, and then yet the need to make decisions and to do things is immediate. And you don't have time to process one thing before you're already thrown into trying to decide what your options are uh, on the other side. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it's a day you don't forget. Ironically, I don't remember. I always have to look up the exact date because time stood still for more than one day. And, uh, so people, some people remember anniversaries. That's not an anniversary that I remember. Uh, I try to forget. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Now your husband also wrote a book. Um, he was, and he was really, in this book, he was trying to map out his journey. So tell us a little bit about it. I believe it was called Exit Strategies, Depriving Death of Its Strangeness, which I love the title. Yeah, he, yeah, the depriving death of its strangeness actually comes from an ancient philosopher who talks about the need to practice death and to become familiar with death in order to become free and to not be frightened of it. So if we deprive death of the strangeness, we overcome the fear and then we are free. And somebody had sent us that um, and that's where we picked that up. It's an ebook, and um, he had kept a journal from day of diagnosis until about five days before he died. And uh, this book came at just as he was concluding uh, his chemotherapy. And so it's kind of the first part of the journey. And I'm working on a book that will talk about the second part of the journey um, with his goal of pointing out all the flaws in the healthcare system um, as individuals who are familiar with the healthcare system and as faculty, as educated people, it was not an easy go, even though many of these people were our friends. Um, we learned firsthand many, many of the problems, uh, go in and ask how much it costs and see what answer you get. It's, it's, uh, like going to Walmart and having everybody in the world throw things in your basket and then give you a bill, you know, two months, two, two years later, uh, and not be able to tell you what it's going to cost. Well, it just depends, would, you know, you have pretty good insurance. What's 20%? Well, 20% of what a million dollars or a thousand dollars. It's in absolute insanity, but everything from that to what it feels like to go through that, um, to hints and uh, things that he learned and then the way that his previous life impacted the way that he received and experienced his uh, illness. What's interesting about this book and about the videos is, is in a way he was leaving a legacy doing a lot of research of my own about my own legacy. And you, you, I'm often asking the question, you know, on my deathbed, will I have done enough? to change the perspective and the point of view of, of educating people enough that they can make their own choices and have the death that they have designed. So when you are lecturing and you show this video of your husband that is no longer with you, I mean, do you see that as his legacy or do you feel like, oh my gosh, I wish he was still here? Or do you feel both? Oh, I absolutely wish he was still here. Although I have to say, and I've said it many times that as much as I would like another hour um, with him, I would not want another hour like the last several hours um, because of the suffering. 
But if I could have him back the way that he was, absolutely. Um, it's not easy to play those videos and to see him up, especially if I'm in front of an audience and to see him on a big screen. Uh, it takes some some practice um, and some desensitizing in many ways. There's no question it's a legacy. It's a legacy for our kids. Um, I'm working with all of uh, five of our children uh, as I'm writing the book that I'm working on, and each of them are telling their story and the grandkids, and they each receive those videos in different ways. Some watch them over and over again, and others haven't been able to watch them at all yet. But to have his personality, his um, physical image, and most of all, his voice is something that most people don't get to have. And we've got that as well as his written word, which is also so reflective of his personality. And we will have that for an eternity. And we're very, very lucky to have that. And, and his dynamic, humorous self uh, engages people in such a way that uh, they really get it. And it's the most effective, the most effective way to deprive death of strangeness that I know. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you do a lot of research in your position. So tell me, because you do research around death and dying, palliative care and hospice. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now or what you have worked on in the past. Yeah, my com- our commitment even before David got sick was to uh, improve the caregiving experience, ironically. Um, we found years ago that uh, caregivers are the ignored piece within the system and even in hospice where they're committed, their philosophy is all about the patient and the family, yet nobody's in charge of the family. Nobody's assessing the family. Uh, They do probably the best job of anybody. There's no question about that, but we need to do better. Uh, So we have done a lot of things to describe the caregiving experience, the toll that it takes on caregivers physically and mentally, emotionally. We know that 30 percent, roughly 30 percent are severely to moderately anxious and or depressed, and yet they're not getting any treatment. It impacts mortality. It impacts morbidity. Um, Individuals who have been caregiving are likely to to end up with autoimmune system disorders and shorten their life. It takes that much of a toll, and it's a journey where by the end you absolutely feel like you're going crazy. It's a gift. It's the greatest gift that you give to someone you love. And I would never regret it, but I also have no desire to ever do it again. Um, So my research involves trying to create tools and interventions to make that easier and to really show that if we take better care of caregivers, that patients end up receiving better care. Are Are you designing something that hopefully you're going to be teaching um, hospices and palliative care clinicians to to kind of always look at the patient, be patient-centered care, but kind of turn our view also and put it, our eyes on the caregiver? That's exactly what we're doing. Uh, and we use technology to do this. For instance, we just finished a study where we use uh, something similar to Skype to bring caregivers into their hospice uh, care plan meetings so that they can experience what everybody on the hospice team is saying about their loved one, and they can add their input. 
So, for instance, when they increase the morphine, the family member can have a say in that and can understand why and what the effects of that are so that they're not so afraid of it. This is blowing my mind. This is, <laughs> no, this is really because, you know, some hospices are not going to like this because it's it's effort. Around around that table, sometimes they, and and it's not it's it's so much that a team has. They come in, they do these IDTs, and for those of you guys that don't know, IDT happens every two weeks on a patient, and that's mandated by the COPs of Medicare. But you're sort of thinking bringing in Skype, where a family member and maybe even a volunteer can now have a role. In the IDT. And family members who are not there day to day, who live afar, who are the ones that always come in at the very last and and, in panic stage cause all trouble. But (laughs) what what we found, I mean, clinicians loved it. Really? Family loved it. But the problem was that it, it bogged down the meeting. These meetings can last hours. And so it took twice as much time. So as we studied it further, the reason it took so much time is because caregivers were not getting educated outside that team meeting and they were not given any social support. So they saw this as a time to get social support and to get to learn. So now our brand new study, which we're getting beginning to recruit for um, next month, we're adding a Facebook component for that, a private um, facilitator-led uh, online support group for hospice caregivers where we use YouTube videos to do education and then the support environment between caregiver to caregiver to support one another so that when they go into the team, they're more prepared and they know these things that we, we, you know, we studied what are the most frequently asked questions and what are the biggest problems that we have. And then they can be better participants, and hopefully we can continue to make the meeting more efficient. Um, the staff loved it because they were able to get people who don't make the visits were able to see the situation and see the home environment and see the caregivers. And so in that way, it made their job more efficient. But we had to get we had to get those caregivers educated and supported because those were not meant to be visits. They're meant to be care plan meetings. And especially those you're serving in a nursing home or assisted living where you most likely are not going to see the family member on every visit that keeps them in touch and connected with what is going on. Because I I cannot tell you the many times that families are emotional and they they see things and their perspective is what they view and it's not necessarily what is being done or correct. And this myth of what hospices are doing, starving people or doing certain things that they are, it's just an uh, a uneducated view of what dying is all about. Um, but I'm really happy. See, this is, this is where technology could really improve um, the hospice experience. There's no question. And we're, we're, we've been running our little five minute YouTube videos past both professionals and caregivers. Um, and it was, you know, kind of testing what's the best way to do that. And the caregiver to caregiver was one of the learnings. And the other piece is, you know, here are the topics we want. And now they've got a whole bunch more topics. And the caregivers are like, we'd love to see this. We're, we're, we're taught how to do this. Um, or why we're giving the medication. And then I forget. And this way I can go back and go back to a website and watch it again. We're supplementing it with handouts. We want to keep it in a, 
an understandable level, which that's where I have an advantage as a social worker over a physician. I mean, keep it in English. You use a bunch of abbreviations that, you know, who knows what PRN and QID and all of these things mean. Um, And so they've been very well received. And as we conduct our research over the next three years, then we should make them better and better and, and end up with something that's very usable. And the YouTube format is free. And uh, that's that's the best thing is we're not going to, you know, we're not doing this to make any money. Uh, caregivers just need access. And there's nothing like that out there on the internet right now. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And that that's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the book that you're writing. Yeah, um, and my husband uh, encouraged me to think about it, and I'd never planned on doing it. But it's been um, quite a process to learn about. And it's a book that's not just my story as a caregiver and as a widow, but also the children's and uh, two of my grandchildren. Everybody in a family experiences death in a different way, depending upon the role and the relationship that you have. So my hope is that in presenting several stories, that people will find somebody they relate to. And that we can offer our experience, again, as another way to deprive death of its strangeness and help people know I'm not crazy. Somebody else feels this way. Um, Here are some things that you can do. I like to describe it as, in many ways, a labyrinth or a maze, is that you enter in with no guide, with no map, and you're all alone. And there are people on the outside that want to come in, but they don't know how to come in and they don't know how to come in and find you in the midst of this maze. So it's also for people who know people who are going through this so that they can understand because everybody, your friends and family will say, you know, if you need anything, call me. If you, I'm here, whatever you need, call me. And as a caregiver, you're overwhelmed and you're going, well, I don't want to ask because we don't do that in our society. And the second thing is, I don't know what I'm asking for. And I can't ask someone to do my laundry or to make a special trip. Um, I like to tell people the most helpful thing is I had a friend who showed up at the front door and she said, give me your laundry. And I said, oh, I can't do that. She goes, no, I'm taking your laundry. I'll bring it back tomorrow. Let me do your laundry. Or the person who calls who was at the grocery store already and said, hey, I'm at the grocery store. What would you like for me to pick up for you? Or who just brings over stuff, sets it on the the doorstep and leaves and calls and says, hey, there's a bag of groceries for you on the doorstep. Whatever you want, keep whatever you don't want, throw out. That's a different way of helping people than what we're used to. You're a giver, though, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I and now I I help people in a different way. Um, I have a friend whose dad uh, was just diagnosed with oral cancer. And I know that the best thing that I can do is uh, to sit, go and and ask her for coffee and kind of make her get out and go for coffee and sit and cry with her and um, relate to her story. Um, I wouldn't have done that before. I would have said, if you need me, call me. Right. And people don't call because you don't want to put anybody out. That's right. 
So this book that you're writing is a collection of stories, different point of views about your husband's journey and death. And it's going to, do you have a name? Uh, I have a working title, um, Depriving Death of Its Strangeness, Family Legacies in the Living Room. Oh. And uh, because the living room was a very special place in our home. And it's where we had a lot of conversations. And it's where my husband died. Um, by our sides. And so it kind of focuses around those family times in the living room uh, and those those discussions. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I love it's, it. It runs across the spectrum uh, through to his death. One of the things he did was write each of us a legacy, individual, like what he called legacy letter. Uh, his last words, his final advice for each of us as individuals and so it allows us an opportunity to share some of pieces of that. We'll, we'll take out some private pieces. Um, but again, it's lessons for people to learn. And what a great thing for someone to do uh, as another part of a legacy to leave. Matter of fact, I'm in the process of making a very important decision. And I dug mine out just this last week um, because he had some words in there about making decisions because he knew me so well. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, they live on, they live on forever. And we're very blessed about that. Tell me the letters that when you receive after someone passes away, I mean, I always thought that would help someone, uh, even if it's last words. How did that make everyone feel? Everyone was different. Um, again, everyone experiences different. Everybody copes different. Uh, one of my daughter's I think it was six months before she sat down to read her letter. She wanted to wait um, until she was in the right place at the right time. And uh, suddenly she found a mountaintop and she took her letter and went and read it on a mountaintop. Um, Others read them right away and read them over and over again. Uh, My daughter-in-law read hers every single day for the first several months. Um, So the difference, again, you one of the nice things about doing a lot of different things is that you can do it in a way that hits a lot of different people because uh, each kid experienced it different, but they all experienced the same loss. So it's really interesting. Well, I tell you, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. But before I let you go, can can you kind of share where individuals can get to these videos on YouTube? Yeah, on uh, D. B-O, that was David B. Oliver. So it's D-B-O, Cancer Journey, all one word, dot blogspot.com. Cool. And where can they download um, his book? Uh, Exit Strategy is available on um, all electronic websites. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's uh, an iBook. Uh, you can download it uh you just search, you'll you'll run into it and find it. And I, it's cheap. It's like four ninety nine. Our goal was to um, make it available so that it's easy for everybody to have it. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time, your sharing, your story, and how your husband. I'm just amazed that he's still changing how people face end of life. Um, I thank you. And if there's anything that I can do um, to help your studies at the University of Missouri, whatever I can do to help support you, I think what you're doing is amazing work. um, And I just applaud you for it. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to share. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.